it is a model of the latest in 21st century food processing technology in terms of food safety, but at its core is old 19th century technology. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined by Rich Grader. Rich is the CEO of Graders, one of the best ice cream companies you'll find anywhere in the world. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, for those people who might not be familiar with Graders, can you start by telling us a little bit about the history of the company? Graders was founded 150 years ago by my great-grandfather in 1870. And we kind of take ice cream for granted today, but you think you go back to 1870, they were missing something that, that, that we have every day here, and that's refrigeration. I mean, he decided to go into the ice cream business before they had uh, cold, basically. I mean, the way you made ice cream back then is you had ice from the ice house that was farmed over the winter, salt and water. You mix that together. It gets cold enough to uh, freeze cream, milk, and sugar. you got to get below zero to do that. And he sold it in an in a open-air street market. I think he made it, sold it immediately, and and that's how it worked because you couldn't take it home and store it. So we kind of go all the way back. So after doing that for a number of years, he, he got a following. So he opened up a storefront where he made it in the back room and sold it in the front room. And a few years later, met my great-grandmother, and they moved to Walnut Hills. And there they made it in the back, sold it in the front, and lived upstairs. And they did that for a number of years until he died and uh, left my great-grandmother a widow with two teenage boys in an era where women really did not run businesses. But she was, um, I never met her, but as I understand, she was quite a formidable woman. And she uh, continued the, the family tradition on. And she did what her husband had not managed to do in the first 50 years of the business, and that was open a second store. So, and by 1920, of course, you had modern refrigeration and ice cream was being commercialized and industrialized and modernized. And so you had automatic, uh, continuous process ice cream machines that could pump out a really high volume of cheap product. And so she was kind of at a crossroads. She could have, like the other companies, have moved to that process, but she didn't. I mean, her name was on the package on the front door, and she wasn't about to change how she made ice cream. So she continued using what we call the French pot process to, to make Grater's ice cream. After opening the first second store, which was in Hyde Park, and that store is still in business today, she started opening other stores because as, as, as the modern ice cream really made it to the market, it pushed out all the other mom and pops. And these ice cream stores were closing, and she went around putting graters in it, and that was her other innovation was supplying local neighborhood ice cream parlors or running local neighborhood ice cream parlors that were supplied out of a commissary, a central manufacturing spot, whereas they had always in the past been making it in the back room. The difference is at the central commissary, while she's making a lot more ice cream, she was still making it in these, these the small batch process, so it was the same quality. And she really did that all through the, uh, the 20s and the Great Depression continued to grow. And by her death in 1955, we had over a dozen stores all across town 
but we were still making it the same way that we were making it when we started. And that's, you know, I don't think there's really anywhere else in the country where that has happened. I mean, everybody in the country before 1900 made ice cream the way we do. And for whatever reason, only in Cincinnati was that old-fashioned French pot method preserved. Oh, I love that. Well, that's a great transition to the fact. Yeah. It's a 150-year-old company. Yeah. But how do you stay true to that 150-year heritage, but relevant for modern times? Graders, all through our, each generation, you kind of have a point to change. And certainly Brigina in 1920 could have adopted modern processes, but she stayed the old-fashioned way. When she died and my father and uncles and aunt came into the business, their generation, they had to invest money into the company. They could have adopted the new methods at that time. They chose to stay with the old-fashioned process. And my cousins and I, when we took over as the fourth generation, we opened a new ice cream manufacturing plant in 2010. At that time, we could have transitioned how we made ice cream. But Really, the French pot process is what makes graters graters. I mean, it is fundamentally different than, than every other ice cream on the market. And the best way to describe the difference is, you know, modern ice cream is basically frozen foam. A continuous process whips up the, the mix, which is you know, cream, milk, sugar, and eggs, if you're making French ice cream, into a foam. And then that foam is extruded and or squirted out basically into a container. And it's still a liquid. And if you turn it upside down, it'll run out into your lap. But then that container is put into a deep freeze or a flash freeze, flash frozen with nitrogen. And so you have this frozen foam and that's what modern ice cream is. Graters with the French pot method, you're not whipping any air into the process. I mean, it's thick, it's creamy. If you When you taste it, it's called mouthfeel is the technical term of art. But it feels different on the tongue because it's it's solid cream that's gently frozen without all that air whipped into it. And we didn't feel that, you know, having been around for for four generations, that we could we could change. And it never really crossed our mind to. So, and I, you know, I think it's it's the fact that we're a family still. We're four. You know, my cousins and I are fourth generation. I think you have to. Nobody else would be crazy enough to, to I think, invest in that old world process like we do. Um, it's just, it's part of our heritage, our legacy, and and we are committed to keeping it that way because that, that's just who we are. So part of that you've changed by staying the same. But yeah. I know when we talked earlier, there, there were things you modernized because you want to get better at right. quality and standards and everything else. So how did you mix keeping that heritage of the French pot but bring in some of those modern practices, yeah. if you will? With great difficulty. <laughs> I mean, there's not a blueprint for doing what we do. Yep. Um, I mean, our, our plant on, on which is the, the street is Regina Greater Way, named after my great-grandmother. It is a model of the latest in 21st century food processing technology in terms of food safety, but at its core is old 19th century technology. I mean, how you make the ice cream. And I mean, it really is a blending of the two. And I, I like to refer to a Jim Collins phrase that you preserve the core but stimulate progress. And that's exactly what we have done there. The core is the French pot process. That's what makes graters graters. And it is fundamentally a small batch process. Each French pot can only make two and a half gallons of ice cream. It takes about 15 minutes. So one pot can make 10 gallons an hour. There's no way to speed that up, no way to make it bigger. But what we do at Regina Greater Way 
different from our old plant in Mount Auburn that my great-grandmother opened in the 30s, which we still own. When I was a kid, we had four French pots. At Regina Greater Way, we have 37, and they run like 20 hours a day. And so basically, we have scaled up by making a whole bunch of little batches. On the other side of that, where we've modernized is in how we cook and prepare our flavor bases. They're all run through a modern vat pasteurization system. We make maybe a 250 gallon flavor batch instead of in my, in my days as a kid I was making that'd be 25 10 gallon batches well now I can make one 250 gallon batch so that helps make sure that you have a consistent product and that's part of quality then on the other end of it we have an automated automated lidding machine we have x-ray inspection we have date coating we have a safety seal and then uh, eight pints are gathered together and shrunk wrap into a uh, a pack, and then there's actually a robot in our freezer that builds pallets. All that, it's the height of modernization, but all that really adds to the quality of preserving the quality and um, food safety. And then we have automated, or um, we have a ERP, MSRP system in the clouds so we can lot trace every ingredient back to the source. I mean, all those things just never existed at our old plant, but today, you know, they're in place. So now we've actually, um, we're what's called an SQF level three certified food facility. SQF stands for safe quality food. It's um, basically independent auditors come in to inspect you. And it's a very intensive three-day inspection. And not many companies, certainly not many companies our size go through that rigor, but that's what we do to um, make sure we're making not only the best product, but the safest product for the consumer. So, you know, we're sitting today on the uh, Braxton Brewing rooftop. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of noise in the background, as people might hear. Yeah. But that's been one of your partners in recent years. Mm -hmm. And what I love is that Graders has been really involved locally with a lot of different partnerships. Um, What's driven you to look at partnerships as a way to kind of leverage your brand in different ways? Well, as we were growing, partnerships were important just to help us stay in business. I mean, for instance, we, in distributing our ice cream to Kroger, we rely on a, on a partner that also makes ice cream in this city. And people would think, oh, they're, they're my, you know, should be my number one competitor. It's like, well, no, we're kind of, you know, we, we serve different customers, but they have a, had a more robust distribution system because they were bigger. And so by partnering with them, that worked, worked out very well for us. Now the Braxton partnership is a, it's a little bit different. That's all right. Being a Cincinnati guy, a German guy, I love beer. So this was a partnership for me made in heaven. And I wish I could say it was some really brilliant thought and strategic planning that led to it. But it was really, I was here at Braxton enjoying a beer with a friend who knew the guys behind Braxton. And he saw them and called them over and we sat down and, you know, and some of those Braxton beers are a little more potent than than your, than your typical Bud Light. And after I think maybe only two, we were like, oh, we ought to do something together. And it was literally that serendipitous. And that's where the black raspberry chocolate malt stout milk stout. I got that wrong, but yeah. that's where the black raspberry uh, Braxton collaboration became. It was really it, it came out of just this serendipitous conversation. And but that's what neat. What's neat about two small businesses is you can get together and and have a wild idea and run with it. And you know it worked out. But you know I think it really you know it it had great benefits for both of us. I mean for for us graders I think got access to 
young folks that go to these craft breweries and you know so we're a 150 year old brand and we don't want to be thought of as, as just you know your grandparents brand we're really here to serve all generations so it was a way to kind of be fun and and come out with a few flavors that were energetic and and for for the braxton folks i think associating with this old brand kind of helped them and and it was just a really neat collaboration that, um, like I say, it wasn't about making a big financial play. It was really about, you know, how can two brands that are local and about craft get together and celebrate their artisanship and and really kind of help lift each other up. And, and I, I do, when I try to describe graders to folks, I say it's, it's like a craft brewery. I mean, you know, craft breweries, you know, what are they all about? They're about really going back to the root of how a product was made and reconnecting with that past and and not just in the old ways but reconnecting and doing new things as well and and that's what graders is it's, we're the same we're, we're very much like a craft brewery and you know for me it was a match made in heaven i love the stuff talent is a big part of predicting the turn and as we talk about talent i wanted to mention one of our sponsors hunt club Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So, you know, when you think about uh, graders, it's really tough to separate graders from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. You know, it's two brands so closely linked. Lately, a lot of brands have shied away from tying themselves to a geography, a hometown. Why has that been so important to you and for the Graders brand to keep that tie as a fabric of the city down to even supporting our local hippopotamus with Fiona? <laughs> Fiona, she's amazing. That hippo can sell ice. She sold ice cream in January, so it <laughs> blows my mind. Um, well, and I think Fiona has, has, has a lot of... Uh, um, popularity outside of the city. I mean, I don't know if it was intentional to limit ourselves to Cincinnati. That's just who we are, who you know, who we've been. And I think it's funny that we we when we first moved to Columbus about 25 years ago. At that time, it was a franchise. After a number of years, I think some folks in Columbus thought that's where we started. And I think the same thing happened in Louisville. And to me, that really makes me feel good. And that people think of us because we're this small great artisan craft product they think of us as part of their hometown now i love cincinnati and looking forward to staying i'm looking forward to a, my, my business our family business being able to keep our family here <laughs> but it's it's just a great town and you know it, it it has the history in it and we're just so i guess you could just say just because we've been here for all you know, four generations now I, I can't imagine being anywhere else but truly Ice cream, unlike Cincinnati chili, which you know, I would say, obviously, in the name, it's it's tied to the city. Ice cream, um, it's an easier product to take outside a city of the city and have people love it as much as as, as anything. Yeah. So, yep. fortunately for us, yep. makes sense. So, you made a comment there about your physical stores that you have in Columbus and other places. Mm-hmm. 
And that's an interesting balancing act because you have physical company-owned stores, right. and then you distribute in great partners like Kroger that also have those retail uh, locations. So how do you think about the balancing between those two of driving to your own scoop shops, right. but then also driving to your retail customers? Well, then we have a third channel when we do direct-to-consumer on, online. Um, so when we first started selling, well, initially, we only sold graders in our stores. Yep. I mean, up, I think until as late as 1980, you had to come to our store or you couldn't get it, period. And Kroger uh, approached us and wanted us to serve ice cream in not all of their stores, maybe just a dozen stores locally. And after twisting my father's arm quite a bit, he finally relented and agreed to do it. And we sold really well in those stores. But I think we expanded to maybe 20 stores. But that's all. That's that's what we did. And, and part of the, I remember at the time, I think my aunt, who really ran some of the, of the scoop shops, was cons- we were always concerned that, well, people are going to, that's going to siphon sales off of our, our own shops to go buy it at Kroger, where we sold it at wholesale to them. So we're going to you know, make less money. Well, that was just, that's just categorically not true. What we've learned and what we do, what's our, part of our strategy now is in markets where we have scoop shops, the sales and the grocery are much better and, and vice versa. They really support one another. And I think the sales in both the grocery store and the brick and mortar stores are stronger in markets where they're together. Because um, we do have markets where we um, have, we sell in grocery stores like Kroger with no brick and mortar stores in, in, in the market. And now it's, they definitely, I mean, it just helps cement the brand in the mind of the consumer, I think. They have it at the scoop shop and then they go to, they go shopping at Kroger and they see it. Oh, that's that's what I had in the store. And so it's now I think we were almost in every Kroger store as well as in some other major retailers. But it's it's been a, and that's just the last 10 years we've had that growth. But now, which is more important? Yeah, we are still primarily a brick and mortar store. I would say uh, 60% of our sales are still at our own stores. Maybe 30%, maybe a little over 60, and then 30% are in grocery, and then the balance would be direct to consumer online. Well, it's a great omni channel strategy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it fits that one plays off the other. So, speaking of that, you've also been a really big proponent of adjacent business models. So, you just mentioned your direct to consumer, which is actually in things like corporate gifting. Yep. So, how do you think about evaluating those new expansion ideas? How could it be incremental versus detrimental to the core? Well, I don't know about incremental is what they all, is what we always look yeah. at them starting out, and we have a saying that you know you want to sh- you know you shoot bullets, and if they work, then you can shoot a cannonball. And so, while well, getting into the direct to consumer is pretty easy, I mean, first people were asking us all along to do it, and after saying no for probably a decade or two. Um, the invention of UPS next day air service made it possible. And so we just started saying yes. So we might do four or five a week. And then, gosh, the internet came along and maybe 1994, we maybe had our first website and we'd sell maybe 20 a week. And it just kind of, it organically, slowly grew. 
And then, of course, you had Oprah, who helped put that business on the map. One in uh, May 22nd, 2002, I think, was the show where she told 40 million Americans, this is the best ice cream I ever tasted. And the next day, I think we had 400 orders. We were flooded. And uh, I remember that date very well because that's the date my daughter was born. And I'm in the hospital with my wife as she's delivering, and I've got folks from my office saying, Oprah's on the phone and wants ice cream. I'm like, well, give it to her. And it really, uh, you know, I think uh, brought some national notoriety to the brand. And we always had some notoriety. I mean, folks, ice cream connoisseurs, as I would call them, knew about graders, you know, wherever they were. And we had shipped ice cream to New York and California where were our number one and two destinations. And then Florida, of course, was always a big destination. Still is because, you know, half a year, Florida's a Midwest state because all of Cincinnati's on the West Coast. So it kind of grew into being the, the kind of business it is today. And and, and the same thing's true of the, of, the, of the grocery. We started in a dozen local Kroger stores, and uh, back in 2007, we uh, worked with some consultants that helped us optimize our old plant so we could make a little more ice cream than we needed. And we approached Kroger, and they thought it would be a good idea. Now, let's, let's try it. So that's when we went to Denver. And we were successful in Denver, so they said, well, let's try another market. And we went to uh, the Dallas and Houston markets, and then Atlanta, and then we had the problem of, okay, <laughs> now we can't make enough ice cream. And that's what led to our new plant, which we opened in 2010. So ice cream is obviously a pretty popular category yeah. that everyone wants to be involved with in some way, shape, or form. So you've seen new competition emerge that are new brands and yep. new approaches of doing things. But you've also seen competition in new societal trends that oh, yeah. you've had to confront and deal with. What's been the strategy that you put in place of saying, okay, that's a trend or a competitive or something that we need to address head on? Uh, to thine own self be true is really the bottom line. Graders is about indulgence. So, and I, I look at it as the difference between trend, trends and fads. And I mean, there's ice cream for whatever reason is, is really subject to a lot of fads. And the very first fad is uh, frozen yogurt. And I call that the zombie dessert because frozen yogurt comes along and it came along in 1990 or whatever. And you had the TCBYs everywhere. I mean, they were everywhere. And then they were nowhere because people realized that it really doesn't taste that great. It actually is a lot more expensive than my graders. And frankly, it's, it's not any more healthy than ice cream. It still has all the calories and anything in it, everything in it. So it died, but it keeps coming back. <laughs> and then, of course, now you have the better for you products, which I question whether they even qualify as ice cream. I mean, to be ice cream, you have to be no more than, by law, 50% air. Now, what should be shocking to the consumer is you can be 50% air and still call yourself ice cream, which is, to me, a joke. Um, and Because you know, Grater's has no whipped air into it. You also have to be 10% butterfat. Now, our ice cream is probably 16 to 18, depending on the flavor. But, you know, these better-for-you things, or now the latest is, uh, I think, protein and keto, keto and all this stuff. And it, it just doesn't make sense. I mean... You know, I think one of the brands, they, they tout that you can eat the whole pint in one sitting. Well, who the heck should do that? I mean, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Ice cream is dessert, number one. Dessert is typically not thought of as a health food. I mean, it's not good for you. It's a treat. 
And, you know, so we have no intention of jumping on that bandwagon. Graders is about indulgence. We are a dessert. We're a reward. You know, so, you know, eat well, run around the block, and then, you know, celebrate with a modest scoop of graders. You know, you don't don't eat the whole pint. I would never tell you to do that. But um, that's and, – and the other thing with these, when I call them fads, is, you know, some of those brands, they really hit the shelf, and the retailers cleared out sections to make room for them. And they had amazing growth rates. I mean, just exploded. And then as little as a year later, they have double digits declines and they're all going away. I mean, will there be a place in the market for them? Absolutely. I think it's going to be a pretty small place. I mean, really, I'm a little biased, I'll admit. But I think the reason that those better for you products can say that they are, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll lose weight on them is because they just don't taste good enough to swallow. <laughs> I mean, you just, you know, so they, they, and that's really been the, the experience. They had, they sold a lot, people tried it, and they went back to, you know, real food, real dessert. And, uh, you know, I'm going to count my calories on the rest of the day, but dessert, that's sacred. I'm going to, I'm going to save a few for that. So on that staying true to yourself and indulgence, is that what led you then to choices like the diabetic friendly version and the sorbets of, we want somebody to do indulgence, but not let those things be a barrier? Yeah, the diet, the sorbet, we've always had sorbets. That's just, um, you know, frankly, and if it's a billion degrees outside, I'd rather have a sorbet than ice cream. And I never, I don't look at sorbets as health food. They don't have dairy in them, so they have less calories. But, you know, a fruit sorbet is just so refreshing and and, um, it's a product in and of itself. I mean, we're not known for them, but I think we make some phenomenal ones. I mean, even the simple lemon sorbet, it's just, man. The diabetic-friendly ice cream is a whole different deal. I mean, that was, um, we don't make that product anymore, and I'm sorry about that, but it just, it didn't, you know, the reason we made it was not for so much for like it wasn't never I never we never pushed it as a diet graders I mean, it was a little bit but you know it was so our diabetic so families with the diabetic family member had something to choose when they came to graders and you know I definitely I do regret that we don't have that now I I I'm, I won't say that it, that that's forever could we bring it back but the product line it just given the constraints we couldn't continue to make it and and it was pretty darn good but i think if we try we could maybe reformulate that at some point in the future and make an even better product but you know for now i'm sorry to say we don't have anything in that area but you know do we ever plan to do a a better for you or a keto or a protein no but the next trend is plant-based. I mean, you see all, you know, now you have meat that's not meat, and people have begun to ask us about that. And that, again, I say it, if, it's, if I'm looking at it as a fad to be diet conscious, I, would, I can easily say no, that's, that's not the direction we would go. But I'm not sure, I don't, I, I believe plant-based is probably a long-term trend, not a fad. It's here to stay. At some point, could we explore that? Yeah. Are we actively looking at it right now? It's more on the thought process. The other problem is, even though our plant is much bigger than our old one, it's still pretty darn small in the grand scheme of things. I mean, our ice cream, we can make not quite 1.5 million gallons, which was 10 times what we made when I was a kid. 
but it is a drop in the bucket. And um, you know, it might be the next generation that comes along and builds a second plant before we can pull that off. But we'll see. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the the generations, so Graders has chosen to remain private yeah. and family owned. Uh, while many competitors have sold out, raised PE money, a yep. whole lot of different paths. Oh, yeah. With that choice to keep the business within the family, it also means working with family uh-huh. on a day-to-day basis. So, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, how have you you and your partners really thought about that, playing to the strengths and building the team around you? Well, you know, they say there's very few family businesses make it past the second generation, and there's a very good reason for that. That would be family. <laughs> um, no. It's not easy. Now, when you get to four generations, though, the, it's funny, the statistics kind of change. So, you know, maybe only a third of the businesses make it to the second generation and maybe only 2% make it to the fourth generation. But then when you go from four to five and, and beyond, the the likelihood of, of continuing actually begins to go up. And I think the reason is, you know, families learn how to make that transition. And that's the hardest part is the transition. The first one was, you know, my great-grandfather just simply died and left a widow. There was no plan. Well, she was a strong woman and managed to make a go of the business. And she died. Her two sons took it over just kind of abruptly, and they did not get along. And my grandfather bought out his brother, and that's how that plan worked. And that would, you know, I can almost say that was a fail. And the next generation um, just kind of eased in. That would be my father and uncles. And then they worked with us. But we worked for them for 50 years before we transferred from the third to the fourth generation. So we were there all that time, and it was still hard. Is it ever easy? No. Um, but you just have to, you know, I think what where we have succeeded, or why we have succeeded, is the business always came first. You know, there are family emphasis on the family businesses, and that's when all the money kind of goes to the family to support a lifestyle. And then there's small family, big business, and that's when the family really leaves the resources reinvested in the business. And that's what all three of us have done. And that's what our fathers and aunt have done. And frankly, that's why the business is still here, because we've put money back into it. I mean, it's to do what we do, the way we do it is very expensive. Um, I mean, our profit margins are thinner than any other ice cream business out there because of the way we make it. It's so labor intensive. And if we were going to price our ice cream the way some of our competitors price their ice cream, we'd be $20 a pint easily. But I I tease our marketing guy (laughs) and tell him that, you know, our biggest marketing spend is in our price, you know, and by keeping it family, you know, we are family business and we're here to serve families and and you can't gouge families with $12 a pint ice cream and, you know, $8 for a couple little scoops in a bowl. I mean, that just, that doesn't work. You know, it might work for some hipster people, but it doesn't work for families. So we have uh, very consciously tried to keep our our pricing within reason. And, And that means you take less from the business and, and really, that's why we're still here. I say if we were owned by a PE firm, they would demand you know, financial results and demand that we meet metrics and hit a certain timetable. And it would, in very short order, I think, uh, end graders as we know it. And that's why we've kept it in the family. Well, I think that's a wonderful point to uh, kind of bring a close to the interview. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's sure. a pleasure, her upholding. And, uh, you know, as a family, the business graders quite often. Thank you for keeping that price in a good place and uh, right. making amazing ice cream. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.